Hello, I am the wolf of Wolf in Tune, Richard Wolfie Wolf. Nice to meet you. Today we're going to have one of my favorite types of discussions. That's with a musician, in this case it happens to be a very accomplished musician, who also has a serious contemplative practice and is knowledgeable about both fields, music and meditation. And that is Zandi Barry. If you don't know, Zandi is an award-winning multi-platinum songwriter and producer who has produced mixed and written songs, get a load of this, with artists including Miley Cyrus, Lil Wayne, Nora Jones, Rihanna, Bonnie Vare, Creeper, Slash, and many others. I hope that's enough credits for you. His songs and compositions have appeared on screen and in soundtracks for many feature films, including the Academy Award-winning Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, Marvel's The Avengers, Insurgent, and many others. Zandi is an ardent meditator. He volunteers for the Aisha Foundation, which focuses on environmental and humanitarian projects around the world. All right, everybody, uh, welcome. Zandi. Hello, Zandi. How you doing? I'm doing good, Wolfie. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, I think that uh, we should let people know, in case people want to look you up, that you spell your name with an X. That's right. Zandy. And so the X, but the X sounds like a Z, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. So um, you've been living with this paradox. You have, I mean, this is one of the quirks of the English language, like the silent G in night and other quirks that an X, because if you're going to go X-Men or X-Ray, it's an X. But for instance, when Drake said he's going to take a Xan, he's talking about Xanax, because it took me a long time to figure that one out. So I'm very proud of that. That's why I'm belaboring this point. It's, a, it's important stuff to know, the subtleties of the X. So, so since you've been living with this your whole life, um, why isn't... Zoo spelled X-O-O, -O, or Zen for that matter. I mean, this is a good question. I think you have to go back to the origin of my name. It's actually short for Alexander, so it's a nickname. Oh. Yeah, it's a, it's a family uh, nickname. Although when I was a kid, it was uh, spelled, my, my family spelled it with a Z, and I got so tired of explaining to people that that was short for Alexander, that I just thought, you know what, it's just going to be easier if we just keep it simple. But as you can see, the confusion continues. So so are you named after Alexander the Great? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> what, but which Alexander you, you named? Oh, Alexander Hamilton? I mean, which one? You know, I don't know. Um, but there was a, uh, look, my parents were hippies. And they came up with a wonderful idea that I should be nicknamed after this Gene Hackman film that not many people know about called uh, Zandy's Bride. So that was sort of, I don't know what kind of late night inspiration hit them for that, but that's the story. Okay. I know we're going to be talking a lot about meditation and mental health and, and those things, but before we get there, you know, I want to talk more about your music career and Everybody loves origin stories. So how did you get your first big break into the record business? Well, I think it was probably a series of little breaks that, that led to um, 
to to a big break. Uh, but I guess the first thing that really kind of turned a corner for me was there was a song. I had gotten a publishing deal with BMG while I was living in New York. And one thing led to another. It seemed like a good time to move to Los Angeles. Wait a second. You got a publishing deal with BMG based on what? Well, I was in a band that uh, was in sort of a late 90s, early 2000s band in New York City called Kilowatt. And we were managed by an incredible person, uh, Jonathan Daniel, who's still a good friend uh, and has always been a, a friend and a mentor beyond you know the years we worked together. Um, so Jonathan had, at the time, he also worked with... Uh, fiction publishing, the Cures publishing label, and he sort of had a little imprint with them. So when Kilowatt dissolved, uh, Jonathan was able to, I think probably because I annoyed him so much, uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, you know, he, he figured out a way to get me a pub deal with this uh, little imprint he had with BMG. And so that was, that was probably the start of it all. You know, our band was, uh, we did pretty well in New York. But, you know, as bands tend to do, it just kind of fizzled out at a certain point. So uh, so I guess that was it. That was sort of the start. Um, but the, the, the real big break came was after that. I, I moved to Los Angeles and I had a songwriting session with another good friend of mine now and mentor, uh, Shelly Pikin, an amazing writer, wonderful human being. Um, and we had this super awkward write just because nobody came up with anything. And I just thought, oh man, this is it. I've blown it. I mean, I, my first songwriting session with a really big writer and it's a disaster. No one came up with anything. I'm probably going to be blacklisted after this. But uh, it was cool because at the end of the session, Shelly turned to everyone and said, guys, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I just feel like I didn't come up with anything, but I had a great time. Do you want to do this again? And I thought, oh, thank goodness. Yes. So... We wrote a bunch of songs uh, over the years and had many cuts together, but this first cut we had was a song I actually wanted to record for myself. I had a project I was doing and Shelly convinced me to pitch it to other people. And uh, the next thing you know, the Backstreet Boys uh, cut it. And oh, wow. That was an amazing, uh, it was an amazing break because I went from bartending and sort of scrapping together money, uh, playing shows to wow, I actually got a check in the mail because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I wrote a song. It was an amazing thing. So that just kind of, you know, led to many other things. So this Backstreet Boys song, it started out as a song for your own artist project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what genre was that in? Oh, kind of like alternative electronic uh, rock. I don't know. I, I guess today you could sort of put it in pop alternative category. Right, so the, it crossed genres because they were more of an R&B-based pop, right? Oh, yeah, totally. And I just couldn't get my head around, how's it going to sound if this band records it? It just didn't, it didn't really register. You know, I couldn't quite hear it. But they did, and it, it came out great, and, you know, I was, I was very grateful. So how did the Backstreet Boys get to hear it? That's a good question. I think it might have been... Teresa Lobabera White, uh, I think she had played it maybe for Nick Lachey or something. 
And uh, I think, ironically, it had been pitched to Backstreet Boys, and their A&R person said, no, nah, I don't think this is right for them. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Teresa heard it for Nick Lachey and thought, ah, you know, this isn't right for Nick, but this will be great for Black Backstreet Boys. So she played it for them, and they loved it. So you know, <laughs> you never know how these things happen. Wow. And what was her relationship to the Backstreet Boys? She was, uh, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think what label they were on at the time. I know she was a and you know, she had discovered Beyonce and, and uh, oh. had, had signed, uh, what was Beyonce's group? I'm, I'm, Destiny's Child. There you go, Destiny's Child, that's right. So I think she had been involved with them and maybe had something to do with, with Jive and maybe at the time, maybe Nick and uh, the Backstreet Boys were label mates or something. But yeah, she, uh, she championed the song. So that was a great break, right? I mean, the Backstreet Boys were top of the charts. The the next coming of New Kids on the Block, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and so that led to other other things, right? That led to other things. Uh, then I started writing and producing for a bunch of artists, including Jessica Simpson, uh, Miley Cyrus. Okay, stop uh, right there. We're going to get into the other ones too. Sure. Um, Miley Cyrus. So how did that come about? Well, that came about uh, from Shelly. Uh, actually had a writing session with her, and she was young then. I mean, I think this was 16-year-old Miley. So she said, look, I've got this artist. She's on a Disney TV show. Do you want to Do you want to write for it? And I thought, all right, sure, Shelly. You know, anything that you suggest, I'm going to take very seriously. So... We show up and there's Miley and she was just great. I mean, the first thing she did was play some demos that she and her buddies in Nashville had kind of done on their own. It wasn't anything like what you would think of Miley Cyrus. I mean, it was really cool, kind of just rootsy country stuff. And I just realized right away, wow. I mean, she's she's just really talented human being. Uh, wrote great songs great energy. She was just a lot of fun to work with. So that was fun. So that was for Hannah Montana 2? Uh, yeah, I think so. One or two. I don't know. There was so many. It was the double album, right? So so we did it. We did a few songs on that. And uh, You know, by the way, I hate to interrupt you, but I'll do it anyway. The reason I know it's Hannah Montana 2 is because my co-producer, Hannah Bowers, uh-huh. was a huge fan of Hannah Montana too, oh, when wow. she was a tween, and you wrote two of her favorite songs. Oh, uh, that's cool. Clear and As I Am. That's right. That's right. So sorry to interrupt you, but go ahead. No, no. So uh, yeah, so that was cool, and then that you know that kind of led to to other things, other opportunities. That record was very successful. Um, but my production partner, who I haven't mentioned until now, Wally Gagel and I had formed this production team, Wax LTD. And we both were kind of more into, I guess, you know, I don't know. Our favorite records growing up were like Depeche Mode and New Order and The Smiths and Massive Attack. And just, you know, we were into different kind of sounding things. So we kind of used the opportunity we had as pop producers, pop writers, to be able to, uh, you know, just kind of leverage that 
I guess, clout into developing artists. So we started doing that, which was really fun. And, you know, that kind of led into other things and other things. So I guess that's sort of the, <laughs> that's how it goes. You know, you come in singing a song and then you end up writing a song for someone else. Well, you're very modest and humble. Um, you didn't mention the fact that you work with uh, Rihanna. We did, yeah. We mixed uh, a few of her. We had a really good friend who was also a good friend of Shelley's, uh, uh, Tony Bruno, and he was her musical director for a couple of years. And so uh, they did some incredible tours. You know, Tony's just just an insane guitar player. And he had been MD, I think, for Enrique Iglesias for years. And he, he's just an amazing guy, really good friend. Uh, Tony and I had met back in New York. And so he was her MD and they were doing these world tours. And so we, we mixed a few of her live albums. Um, it, was, it was great. It was really cool to kind of get to work on her material in that capacity. She's also just an incredibly talented human being. Uh, and the band was great, and the shows were great. So that was really fun. So did she come to the mixes? No, she uh, she was pretty busy at that point. So we would just kind of get notes. And, uh, you know, I think we hung out with her once, you know, at, at, a, at a social thing. Um, but everything we were doing was mostly dealt with through Tony. Um, and at that point, I mean, she was really at the height of, so much going on so i mean I, I just looking at her schedule it's amazing she even had time to to give notes on anything to be honest right wow and you also worked with little wayne right <laughs> yeah 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 that was an interesting one um that came about because there's an incredible artist named baby e who i've been friends with for a long time and we kind of have a, a cool bond because we grew up in a very similar part of North Florida. So <laughs> we just have a lot of things we relate to growing up. So Baby E and I did this track uh, with a buddy of his, Alan Edwards, called Finessin. And that was a pretty successful uh, song online. What kind of song? What, what, what kind of song was that? I mean, I guess you just sort of put it into the hip-hop trap category. Um, so did you work on the track on that or yeah 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 i worked on the track with with e so that song kind of took off in popularity and then a lot of artists uh started kind of picking up on it and at the time e was managed by mac main another really cool character in my life and uh mac and e mac's very tied in with lil wayne so basically they did a version together of that song so we kind of incorporated some of E's stuff and it ended up on you know one of one of one of his records as well so so that was cool that was a fun uh <laughs> series of events yeah that's that's pretty impressive i mean the range the range of stuff from miley cyrus and uh, kilowatt to lil wayne were you in the studio with Lil Wayne? No, no. That okay. one was also, uh, E went over there to kind of cut vocals with him. And then, uh, you know, it all in, in sort of modern fashion, everything got sort of strung together. Right, right, right. Because I was going to ask you how you avoid just staring at his teeth 
<laughs> if you were in the studio with him, but that would have kept me up all night. But um, <laughs> you know, he says he's a, he's a super cool guy, so uh, I believe him. So, um, according again to your CV, you also worked with Nora Jones. Yeah, we uh, for years we we kind of had this uh, amazing opportunity. I don't know if you remember. Um, iTunes originals, but Apple used to have this really cool thing called iTunes originals. So what would happen is, you know, an artist would come into Los Angeles and record live maybe seven to 10 songs. And I think it'd usually get distilled down to, um, you know, five to seven and, you know, do two, three takes live of every song and um, and then, you know, release it. So one of the sessions we did was with Nora Jones. The basic tracking was just done down the street at East West. And, uh, and then we, you know, we finished it up at our studio and mixed it. And on the, the day of that tracking, I actually wasn't in. Uh, Wally was handling that. And then we brought it back to the studio and kind of finished it up. But that was really amazing to, to hear her. A good friend of ours, uh, Joey Warnaker, was also playing drums that day. And just the musicians and everyone, it's, it's, it's some of my favorite stuff we've worked on. You know, it just sounded so good. Um, and she's incredible. I mean, she's one of those artists where you hear her live. You know, she was coming up in New York, actually, at the same time my band Kilowatt was happening. And she was, there was this place in uh, the Lower East Side called The Living Room. And uh, she was kind of bouncing around there, Jesse Harris and all those people. Uh, my roommate actually ran sound at the living room for a while. So it was kind of cool full circle to, to sort of reconnect with her after she had had so much you know, success and great things happen and put out such great music. Oh, that, that's an incredible story. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we don't, we don't know each other, but we just kind of, sat in the same orbits for so long and so it was it was cool to you know i remember the year she won all the grammys it was just great uh her you know her music is just uh she's just a supreme talent it's really cool too bad you didn't uh she doesn't know you because you could introduce her to Lil wayne he doesn't know you either <laughs> but they both use your music yeah yeah <laughs> well this happens a lot you know i mean especially yeah. now you know it's it's so much music getting made and people aren't even on the same continent or the same room anymore. They might even be in the same city, but they never are face to face, you know, because of COVID and everything. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know how many people realize that, but uh, you have sometimes you have like six people collaborating on a song before the artist ever gets involved. That's right. And, and some, it could be 20. I mean, it, some, right? I mean, yeah, depending on how pushy everyone's managers are, yes, you can end up with 20 writers on the, on the publishing splits. What's the number of the most people you had to split your songwriting credits with? I think 11. Wow. There was a song that Sultan and Ned did that Sam Martin had co-wrote on, and... Uh, Zella Day performed on it, and there were just there were just a ton of writers on it by the end of the day. I think it was eleven, which was funny, but cool, I guess you know. Wow. 
And last but not least, I think unless there's somebody that we didn't mention that you want to talk about, um, I'm curious to know about Bonnie Vare, how that came about. Again, you know, looking at the range of yeah. the kinds of, of genres you're involved with, um, it's pretty impressive. So how does Bon Iver come in the picture? That that was the same uh, pathway as Nora. We uh, we recorded them at East West, uh, an iTunes original session. And I have to say, they were also fantastic live. Um, they, they just, they had a, their live show was so good. They came in, it, it seemed like almost a semi truck full of gear, uh, you know, just just so many musicians. And that, that was the same thing. Uh, those guys came in, they laid it all down. Um, and the recordings are great. Uh, really, really, really came out great. And what record did that appear on? Do you know? You remember? Oh, it's also, uh, you can get it, I, you know, I don't know, because the iTunes store, it's funny. I mean, I have all the masters here, and I sometimes wonder if they're all still going to be available. Um, but I think they are. I think if you go online to the iTunes store, you just find the bomb, you know, their sessions. When you say master, what form are they in? They're not tapes, are they? Well, no, we got them on hard drives. So oh, okay. we got, we, we've got the we've got a backup copy of everything in our archive, and then uh, Apple has the originals, I guess. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned that you develop artists, and that's something you like. That's a tremendous amount of work. It's so hard to do. Um, it takes so much out of you, I think, at least in my experience, musically, physically, spiritually. Is that your experience? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think if you want to spend time and do it right, you know, really do right by the artist, you have to put a tremendous amount of energy into it. And you have to have patience and you have to have a lot of faith and you have to have a lot of perseverance and you have to have a stomach for defeat and <laughs> you have to be willing to get back up and keep going and uh yeah i mean it's a it's a whole thing you know it's um it's the hardest thing in the world actually in the music business to break an artist that is yeah. that is the tallest climb there is for sure but I think it's worth it because, you know, that's how new great music gets made. And I, I just really enjoy the process. You know, I enjoy having been an artist, having lived that whole life, uh, toured, sent demos to people, been rejected, waiting for the opportunity to happen, all that stuff that, that just is par for the course. You know, I just, I have a soft spot in my being for someone who's starting out and just kind of wants to get it going. So yeah, I, I, it takes up a lot of time though. You got to be willing to spend the time and there's a lot of heartbreak, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it does work out and it, the, the outcome isn't still what everybody had hoped it would be. Uh, yeah. you know, so, and then sometimes you see people that, you've really helped uh, get to a place and they've succeeded. And then, you know, they really fall on hard times for other reasons. And that's hard to watch because you, you got to care about them if you're doing your job right. There you go. You just made 
like the cardinal point in that you have a, a personal relationship when you're developing an artist, which is so much deeper and broader than working with an established artist. That's a beautiful relationship too, but the, it's qualitatively different, right? You talk about rejection and disappointment and even you're dealing with, you know, uh, developing artists that are extremely vulnerable to all kinds of disappointments, addictions, distractions. As we get into this territory, I think we're going to explore this even, we have to explore this even more deeply, right? Because uh, one of the reasons you and I are talking is about this whole issue of mental health. Yes. We were introduced by uh, Erica Cruzen, and she uh, is insightful enough and knowledgeable enough to, to put us together. And she's at Music Cares, and she's uh, one of the great authorities on mental health in the music business, right? And so it's just natural for us to, to get into a deeper conversation about this. When you're dealing with artists, do you have these discussions either formally or informally about how they can maintain their mental health? Well, definitely. Uh, I think sometimes it's, it's subtext, sometimes it's, you know, bold, italicized, exclamation point text, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you're going to enter into any kind of creative endeavor with someone, you have to put their well-being in mind first and foremost uh, because all great things come from well-being you know if you have no well-being you know you won't be able to sustain any kind of little magic that you create for very long so yeah absolutely i mean i i try to with artists and you know with anyone that i'm working with just just think about their well-being and at the same time uh you know try and impart some wisdom where, where I can. Uh, you know, I think collaborative processes have to be a two-way street. You know, I learn from every artist that I work with, no matter how young they are or experienced they are or where they come from, what culture they come from. You know, that's the joy of collaboration is you're going to learn something from someone else. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's why, you know, we, we have such a crisis in terms of uh, musicians overdosing, uh, going into depression, having substance abuse issues. I mean, there's all kinds of pressures in life to begin with. And I think artistic people tend to be more sensitive, uh, more observant. They take on feelings more intensely. And that's why they're great as artists. But the entertainment business also has its own unique set of you know, pitfalls that, that show up. And I think it's a big issue. Uh, it's something that, you know, I'm certainly feeling we all need to be doing much more about. Uh, and, you know, Erica is a great example of somebody who has really dedicated herself to this, you know, endeavor in the, in the world of music. I mean, these artists are, you know, they're treasures. I mean, they're, they show us who we are. You know, they're our voice. They're, they, they show me the art and it'll tell you everything about that culture. 
you know, that you, you might not have known. So, you know, they have to be, they got to be really cherished. And we, we have, I think, uh, it, it's just responsible to, to want to take care of people that have such an important role in, uh, in our culture and in our, you know, our, the fabric of our society. Um, I mean, that goes for everyone. Everyone, uh, you know, should have well-being in their life. Uh, but I think you, myself, others, you know, we see that in music, there's just, uh, I don't know, there's some unique challenges and, and problems we have to face. Beautifully said. I mean, you're expressing responsibility for the well-being and mental health of artists. And that's that's unusual for a producer-songwriter. It shouldn't be unusual for a manager. Um, but, you know, what percentage of managers do you think take that attitude of, uh, you know, feeling that they're responsible for the mental health of their, their artists? I think an eye-opening example is if you ever see the uh, documentary about Avicii, mm. who uh, was an enormously popular DJ and producer, and mm. enormously successful, and at a very young age slit his wrists, how he was being pushed, and uh, he didn't really know who he was, and uh, he wanted to escape. And uh, you, you see how the music business pushes these artists, regardless of what it's going to do to their mental health. That's right. And, you know, when somebody's, it's even harder, I think, when someone's extremely successful, because now all of a sudden, there's so many people that have an interest in them continuing to generate revenue, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of their health. Right. And nobody wants to see that train stop for a week or two weeks or six months or however the hell long it takes to ensure that they're in a good place. And, you know, ultimately, that's a very unintelligent way to go about it, right? Just mm -hmm. pushing people until they break. So I think I think the good managers, you know, understand this. Uh, but it's the same with uh, producers. I mean, I always feel like, look, you know, the song to me has always been something that you invite into the room it's you have to set the right ambience you know you have to you know we're in a sense we're just kind of channels for this thing that happens and you know sometimes a song pokes its head in the room and it's like ah, eh, i don't like the vibe in there and it's just going to turn around and walk away and if you're listening carefully enough you can hear it when it shows up and i think you know, the best way to create that kind of environment, and, and my experience has been, you got to be on the level with people. You have to earn their trust so that, you know, everybody's receptivity is, is open. You know, if people are closed off and they don't feel comfortable or they sense that you don't really actually care, then why the hell are you there anyway? I mean, what's the point? So I, to me, it's just sort of a practical way of doing it I, I you know I try not in my life to get too caught up in morality I just think it's the sensible way to be and if uh, if you take the well-being of everybody that you're working with you know as, as something that's very important to you great things can happen great things right what tools do you impart or what lessons or what leadership 
do you convey to artists to help them support their mental health? Well, I think, you know, it starts with uh, not becoming your own worst enemy. I think that 99% of what goes sideways for people is themselves. Uh, and there's so many opportunities to turn your own intelligence against yourself when you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, measuring the metrics of your success based off of social media statistics, based off sales statistics, based off popularity as measured on some arbitrary chart, all of that stuff. Right. And there is, you, you, if you're going to run a business, you need to pay attention to those things. But if you're going to run a human being well, I don't think those things have very much importance compared to how well you're keeping the chemistry within yourself just on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't know. I just, I think people have different levels of awareness and, and receptivity. I have some artists that I'm, I've meditated with, um, some that, you know, they just, they just want someone to listen to what's going on and, you know, a reasonable sort of response to their dilemmas. Um, but I think in general, just the thing that I see in our society and in artists in particular is they're just very hard on themselves. You know, they, they, <laughs> they can't wait to, to sort of achieve certain external successes and measure their worth on that. But the truth is all of those are temporary anyway. So get yourself sorted, uh, get your energies to a good place and then everything else will follow in step with that. You know, you get that part right. It doesn't matter if you're in heaven or if you're in hell, you're going to do really, really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say that the artists are hard on themselves and it's a couple of things going on there. There's perfectionism, right? Mm. You talk about comparing or whatever. So they have, they grow up uh, I, I, idolizing certain singers or other artists and they want to live up to those examples and those are the standards they set for themselves that's one one issue the other issue is that they think that their sole purpose in life is to be that artist and life is just much bigger than that it's bigger than your mind it's bigger than your body it's bigger than the idea that you have of what an artist should be mm. And when, when and if people realize, artists and musicians, yes, we're instruments when we're playing music, but our whole lives are really limitless. Our purpose is limitless. And I think when artists realize that, those are, those are the happy ones. You know, you look at people like Herbie Hancock or Paul McCartney, um, and examples go on and on. They all happen to be meditators by accident. <laughs> right, right. But they're, you know, or Philip Glass, um, and now you have even Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole. They realize, J. Cole says, my purpose is not my something I'm determining. It's, it's God that's working through me. And when artists realize that, it, it, it makes it the whole experience of who they are so different and so much more sustainable. That's right. Uh, 
I, I agree with that. Um, you know, it's funny, I, I, I enjoyed very much reading your book. And one of the chapters I enjoyed, uh, you talked about the sense of uh, dissolving, you know, into sort of nothingness. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned Springsteen and how he, you know, in his uh, autobiography had kind of discussed the concept that he was just having as a young person such a hard time dealing with himself but music was sort of the place he could get lost he could put his attention into it he could get in front of a crowd and just completely lose himself you know um and i think what you just said is very true i mean i you know i always people get so caught up in oh well i gotta be number one or i gotta I, i'm only number two this week or uh you know i haven't even got my record deal and you know, they just need a little cosmic perspective, right? I mean, we're a little speck of nothing in the speck of nothingness, right? I mean, this ball of mud that's sort of spinning around uh, one star in our galaxy. I mean, if the whole damn thing disappeared tomorrow, the entire solar system, not only would the cosmos not even notice, I mean, the Milky Way would not even, you know, it, it wouldn't even bat an eyelash. Uh, so... I think we have to understand as human beings that all of the things that we stress about and we think are important are our own creations. I mean, everything that's wonderful on this planet that humans have created, everything that's horrible on this planet that humans have created, it was first manifest in the human mind. And so if we keep our minds a certain way. Our power to manifest things that are wonderful is greatly increased, actually. Um, but if we're a mess, you know, it, it's, it's a sort of haphazard way of going about it, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, for me, you know, the study of, or I guess the practice of, of meditation and of yoga um, in a classical sense, has been, you know, a real change for me. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think I might have mentioned this to you before when we first talked, you know, meditation for me isn't, isn't something that I do. It's something that, it's a quality that I become. And uh, I think anybody who wants to pursue that, there's a lot of great methods and technologies for doing that that have evolved over many millennium in many different cultures. Yeah, so let's talk about your practice. So how did this come about? How did your practice come about? <laughs> well, uh, it's funny, you know, I think it was a series of events that, that, that kind of led up to it. Um, I remember I had this one distinct moment. I, uh, one thing you may not know about me is I love cars. I love racing cars. I just find that really fun and just, I don't know, I can't get enough of it. So a few years back, I was out in Fontana. There's a, there's a pretty big racetrack out there and I'm racing this car and you know, I finished, I got off the lap and uh, you know, kind of went back to the garage and I'm, I'm sitting there and I just sort of had this profound realization. I mean, here I am, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. Uh, you know, I have a successful by some yardstick career. You know, I've got a beautiful family, a beautiful house, all the boxes checked. And yet, 
it still, I, I, I still wasn't satisfied. I mean, it wasn't enough. And I think, I think that that was sort of the beginning for me of realizing that, you know, if you're fulfilling yourself through external achievements or, or material things, you know, it's a never ending pursuit. And then when you get to the end of it, you've acquired all this stuff and then you die and then you don't get to take any of it with you. In fact, all of the things that you quote own become the possession of somebody else in an instant. So I don't know, that was kind of the first thing that sort of rattled my cage. It was like, well, I don't know. I, I like, I'm supposed to be happy. This is supposed to be everything, but it, 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 it wasn't. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, um, you know, I, I, I went through a divorce and that of course makes everybody really reflect inward, I think. Um, and I was, I was just, uh, at a place where I kind of wanted to know more about why I was so miserable. Uh, why wasn't I just at a place where I should be happy? Because everybody around me was always saying, oh, you've got everything you want, you know, this, whatever. Why are you, you know, what's there to be complaining about? So anyway, that led me to uh, just just reading more and whatever. And then, you know, I came across this Indian mystic Sadhguru and he had just popped up on my YouTube somehow. Uh, I guess Google felt sorry for me. You know, maybe their algorithm had determined that I was needing a little uh, outside inspiration or advice. And it was just a talk that he gave for about 20 minutes. And I listened to it. And all of a sudden, I thought, oh, there's a whole other way of looking and seeing all of this. I want to know more about that. So I started practicing some basic meditative techniques um, and doing that. And then I got a little deeper into it. And then that led to further meditation. And then eventually, you know, I ended up going to an ashram and spending some time there doing a really intense uh, practice. So, yeah, I guess what I practice today is a combination of um, uh, Hatha yoga practice, which is a you know, a physical practice uh, called Angamardana. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that basically, you know, a lot of people have a misconception about yoga, as did I. I mean, I'm somebody who laughed at it for years. I thought it was the most silly thing. You know, I was a high school sports player. You know, I just thought, ah, what is this yoga crap? All these people running around in leotards and looking at each other in the mirror and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Well, I just didn't know because I wasn't exposed to, I guess, the, the classic sense of yoga that's been around for thousands of years. And, you know, the, the asanas that you do, all this work with the body, that's just preparation for, for deeper reflection, for deeper, uh, you know, inner workings. So, yeah, it took me a while to kind of understand that and just untangle the body a bit. You untangle the body a bit and then the mind untangles a bit. You untangle the mind and then the body untangles. You know, these two things are very closely related. But I was sort of shocked to discover that there is a profound science to all this stuff that has been around for thousands of years. And it has a, a deep, deep, deep understanding of how the human system functions, you know, 
So, I, I mean, I could go deeper into it. I don't know if I'm going off on a tangent, but it, there, there was just so much to dive into. And more importantly, the more I experienced it, uh, the less all of my problems and ultimately my own nonsense became an issue in my life. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just been a transformative, uh, I guess, technique or tool for me in my life. Right. So the 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 mental part or the spiritual part or however you want to characterize it, as opposed to the physical part of yoga, is also something that um, is important in your practice. Most people don't know about how important that is and, and the role that the physical part plays in preparing the mind. I, I heard Alan Watts in a lecture on yoga say that the word yoga comes from yoke, like mm. to yoke an animal. And the idea is it's connecting. Um, I forgot what's connecting, but something is connecting. No, well, I, I think, uh, no, I know. I'm kidding. It's <laughs> it's connected. It's the mind yoking the body, and the body yoking the mind. I mean, it's it's that connection there. Yeah, I think in its literal translation, it means union. You know, it's 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 reaching the ultimate yeah. understanding that. I mean, look, you can, from a scientific perspective, understand that. You know, every piece of matter that we know it. As you know, the physical world that we see, everything mm -hmm. around us, you know, is made up of molecules, and these molecules are atoms, and these atoms are combinations of electrons, protons, neutrons, and then there's a subatomic particle, an array of them, and then it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and then at at some point you realize that it's all energy, you know, vibrating uh, at different frequencies and manifesting itself in different forms but that it's the same fundamental stuff. Right. And so, you know, yoga is a, is a, is a way, it's a pathway to, to understanding that at a certain point, you know, there, there, yes, there's a physical world, but, but if you look deeper, you know, uh, you see that it's all kind of one continuous field of energy. Yeah, it, it's exactly, it, it, it's an energy field of awareness mm. and then everything manifests in diversity or mm -hmm. multiplicity but it is one energy field I mean at least it's, it's my experience and your experience right yeah and there's also you know there's all these concepts I think that, that Westerners have a hard time understanding you know this concept of Shiva like what is Shiva well, she and va is like the no thing. It's not nothing. Right. It's the no thing. Right. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, modern science sort of saying, well, now that we really look at it, the universe is composed of maybe 68% dark energy, right. maybe 27% dark matter. Mm-hmm which we don't even understand those things. And then we've mm -hmm. got this 5% that is sort of what we think of as everything. So you have, in a sense, back to this concept of nothingness, you have existence sitting in the lap of nothingness. And 
I, I think it's an exciting time because as you, if you want to dive deep into Western science and if you want to dive deep into, you know, an Eastern understanding of existence, they're starting to, the tentacles are starting to come together in certain ways. Right. Absolutely. Did you sense when you first started to meditate and get into these practices that there was some kind of a relationship between your musical practice and these new practices, new to you? Well, definitely. Um, I, I think music for me has always been, it has been meditative for me to do music. Uh, you know, as, as, as you know, and as you've described in your book, you know, you can just, when you become proficient at an instrument and you practice over and over again, or you're working on a song over and over and over again, just the world goes away. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've experienced this, Wolfie. You know, it's just like you, you know, you, you sit down to work on some music and then 12 hours have passed and you forgot to eat maybe. And, oh my God, it's two in the morning and what the hell happened? I'm still in the studio. It's dark outside. I mean, time just goes away. And this is very similar to what happens in deep meditative states. Uh, you know, time can just flip and you don't realize how long you've been sitting. Uh, so there's a dimension of awareness that is not about your five senses that, you know, I think music always has tapped into for me. Uh, it's just, it's like another dimension. It's just, it's another channel of something that you can't really see. And it comes out physically in the form of sound. And it has this power that is just, I don't know, it just doesn't add up to me, you know? The math of music doesn't add up. There's something else going on with it that that uh, is that thing that gives you the feeling, you know? It literally gets inside of people and it causes things to blossom within them, feelings, emotions, energies. So, yeah, I mean, at first, but I have to say, you know, not being a person that practiced yoga or meditation, it took me a while. I had to go through a certain amount of discomfort to break through uh, to just a, a greater awareness of things, as it were. Hmm. Well, music also uh, involves some discomfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never thought of that connection, but uh, now that you mentioned it, when you talk about um, feeling that music can, can inspire or invoke in people, uh, and I think that's another commonality between music and meditation in that it's it's a harmony between mind, body, feeling. When you're making music, it's totally immersive. It can make you nod your head. It can make you snap mm. your fingers right. But it could also move you to tears or move mm. you to joy. So there are all these aspects that are integrated together. They're in harmony. Same thing with meditation when it's really working is you're totally, your whole being is in that moment. There's no mind is one place, body is another place when it's working. It's all in harmony. You're, you're whole, you're complete. For me, that was one of the things that were, was familiar getting into meditation from being a musician. Yeah, I, uh, I can relate to that and agree with it. 
uh, I've certainly music, you know, there's just been times with music where you're working on something so intensely and then just, just for whatever reason, tears will just come down my face, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I can't, I can't really tell you I'm sad or I'm happy. It's more just the intensity of emotion. It just brings you to tears. And the same is true sitting uh, and breathing and doing certain processes, you know, just sometimes it's, it's overwhelming uh, in a beautiful way. Uh, so there's, there's, there's always been a connection, I think, for, for me to the two. But I've also just found that meditativeness makes you a better creator. I mean, you just, you use your mind and your creativity freely and consciously uh, instead of accidentally, you know. And so uh, you can kind of sustain creative states for a lot longer. And you're just not bothered with your own nonsense, you know, your, the, the chattering of your mind, you know, that gets in the way of actually creating. Uh, I, I just, I don't know how to describe it other than for me, creating music, it, it, it's just as soon as I get out of the way, that's when it really, mm -hmm. it hits, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it just flows through me. I don't feel like I, I feel I'm just a very well trained antenna but I don't really think I'm creating it. Uh, it just shows up. Yeah. It just shows up. Yeah. So you've noticed a difference. You say you could create for longer periods of time now than you could before you started meditating. Well, I, think I mean, it's... by the way, I, I'm interrupting you again because that's my prerogative as the host. I'm very rude. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no. I mean, I... I, I, I they say that the best songs... I'm interrupting you again. They say that the best songs are written in 10 minutes. So in pop music, you don't have to sit there and create for long periods of time. Or you, you do, you make your contributions, and the other 10 people that are going to make their contributions are waiting online. Yeah, I think... Uh... There's some truth to that, uh, I, but but songs are funny, you know, some of them come easily, some of them you really have to work on them, and then they finally blossom. You know, I think the important thing is just don't get too caught up on how long it takes or whatever. I think if you're in a really open state, they can come quicker. If you're closed off, you got to work out the kinks, eh, you might have to chip away at it for a while. Um, but... You know, it's true that that um, I, I think if you really look at a song, the, the moment that a song actually comes together, regardless of how long you've been working on it, is, is a very brief moment, actually, uh, where the meat of it, the, the hook of it, the, the, the center of gravity of it all, you know? And then you dress it up, you make revisions, you fix certain things, but it's that original idea that just sort of poof, it pops into your head. That's, that can happen really fast. And so I, I wouldn't say I can work longer because I, I'm used to, I've always been able to work really long hours. I don't know, it's just, uh, I don't know if it's just sort of my metabolism or whatever I just I don't really need food once I get into a groove with music I never have I mean at a certain point everyone around me will get hangry and grumpy and oh okay we got to eat 
Mm-hmm. But I think with meditation, it's just more, it's when you're not in that blissful state of creating music. It's all the other garbage that your brain is just tossing around, your own nonsense, that, you know, it's the, the, the stupid thoughts that you come up with that have no basis in reality. They're just your imagination and your memory uh, being used in the wrong way uh, and causing you to suffer needlessly, you know? Yeah, I think it's very useful advice which, when you said that don't worry about how long it's taking time, whether it's 10 minutes or 10 years, because they're great examples of music that's taken 10 minutes and they're great examples of music that's taken 10 years. I mean, I think Leonard Cohen said his, his, his biggest hit, Hallelujah, I think he says it took him nine years to write that song. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it took nine years. It sounds like it sounds like it's existed since the beginning of time. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm one of those chip away people. Uh, very very little happens in ten minutes with me. Um, although your point about saying the original inspiration is very quick. And that's a thing that I think meditation can help because inspiration is one thing, but then you have to persevere to fulfill the full potential of the song. And a lot of people have trouble doing that, which is why you have 11 people on a song because they can start, but they can't finish. And with when you get used to concentrating for long periods of time, it, this would help, I think, people to complete their songs you know, that, that get great inspiration, but just have a problem seeing it all the way through. Yeah, I think that's one of the roles of a producer, as you know, is to, to get it done, to finish it, and to say it's done now. I think that's one of the hardest things to learn as a producer, because you're, especially now with technology and recalls being instantaneous, you know, you can just work on something and work on something and work on something. But, you know, there are, different, uh, there are different ways of going about it. And I think in the realm of creativity, it's always wise to, to, to see how other people are doing it. I mean, success leaves clues. You know, uh, you may have a friend that you haven't talked to, that you've worked with for years, and you never ask them, like, oh, how, how long do you spend mixing a song, you know? And you might be shocked at their answer. And then you say, well, why? Why, why so much time or why so little time? You know, then maybe there's some insight there. So I think keeping an open mind, keeping your mind flexible, keeping your mind uh, like water so that it will adapt to whatever shape you present it with, you know. So aside from, from writing, creating or producing music, how has meditation impacted your life? I know that's a big question. Yeah. But. I think that the bigger question is probably how has it not? I, I can't think of any way it hasn't. Uh, for me, uh, finding a way to, to focus inward and to just get a hold of what this human mechanism is has been a life-transforming uh, experience, you know? I... Uh, I mean, in all honesty, before I was a practitioner, you know, I would, I felt like I would have a lot of ups and downs. Uh, you know, I would, people would always think of me as a, as a generally calm and friendly person, but on the inside, you know, I would be just 
just like a choppy ocean. So for me, yeah, everything is 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 much more level. Um, I find myself much more uh, compassionate towards others. Uh, I think I'm generally have always been a compassionate person, but I think there's another level to uh, to that that has opened up for me. Um, and I think it's it's changed, you know, uh, it's helped me be a better parent, a better friend, uh, just a better human being to to everyone around me. You know, I think you kind of realize at a certain point, if you, make yourself into a pleasant state, you know, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful offering for people around you. It's, it's a nice gift uh, when you're around someone who's in a pleasant state, because you tend to do good things then. And when I say good things, I mean, you know, what, what's obviously needed in any given situation, not necessarily what's morally good or morally bad. That's, you know, not what I'm interested in describing. It's more just, you do what's needed, you know, if somebody's in front of you and they need some help, you give them help, you know. If you're, if you're joyful, you're going to tend to create better, you know. Uh, I don't really see it as a transactional experience, meditativeness. It's more just a qualitative change. Yeah, you know, when you were talking earlier about caring for your artists, for their mental state and their sense of well-being... And now you mentioned that you think you've always been compassionate. I, all of this makes sense. Here's my theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I think by nature you're an unusually compassionate person, um, which might be one of the reasons why you're attracted to this practice, why you've persevered in this practice, because a lot of it is about compassion for the world. And then maybe through the practice, your compassion has gotten even deeper than it was before. But you started out with a, a healthy dose of a compassionate nature. Tell me, is, am I wrong about this? Or? Well, who, who am I to, to say who's wrong or right? But I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that. Uh, in my experience, sure, you know. But, you know, we can be compassionate and we can still be very selfish in ways we don't realize, you know. There's a difference between doing something nice for somebody because you perceive that to be a practical thing and maybe there will be a transactional benefit for you, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a deeper selflessness that can come from just eliminating what's in it for me, you know, from your life. And if you try living your life just a little bit, even half the day, six hours, and you just eliminate the thought of what's in it for me, life will speak to you in a different way. And so, yeah, I mean, everyone has every spectrum of human possibility within them. You know, a human being has such a huge range of emotions. We can be vengeful. We can be happy. We can be joyful. We can be miserable. We can be angry. We can be peaceful. And it's just a question of, do you have a handle on all that or is that just happening and you're on the ride, you know? Mm, on the ride. Well, on that um, melodic note, 
Is there a melody? Do we do we have one? Let's let's pop that in there. Yeah, it's it's inherent in the syllables of on the ride. Yeah. Um so is there anything that you want to mention before we close that you have not had an opportunity to talk about? Uh no, I mean just uh I would encourage, you know, anyone who has any kind of preconceived ideas about meditation or people who meditate or uh, yoga or Zen or any of these paths that you may have heard of, I, I would just say don't believe anything that anyone tells you about it. And don't disbelieve anything that anyone tells you about it. Just be open to trying something. And if you're going to try something, I don't know, try and learn from somebody who seems to be benefiting from what it is that they're offering and uh, and just experience because I think there's a whole world of well-being that can be accessed uh, with a little practice and it has to be one that works for you and different people have different practices that work for them and uh, Sometimes they try something and it doesn't work and they just assume it'll never work for them. Well, maybe you're not patient enough or maybe you should try something else. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I appreciate you, um, man, and all that you've done. You've, you've written a great book on this very matter. And uh, I think it's great that you teach so many people uh, in your life, uh, so many students. And, you know, I, I sense a pretty deep well of uh, genuine compassion within you as well. So it's, it's, it's been lovely becoming friends and getting to know you. And I'm really honored to be on your podcast today. Well, you described what's happening to me right now about 15 minutes ago when you said, all of a sudden a tear appears in my eye when I'm playing music. Um, <laughs> I'm only half joking. Um, <laughs> It has been incandescent chatting with you and getting to know you. I second all the things that you said, and I thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me for this podcast. The pleasure's mine. It's, it's been fun. I feel like we got a lot more to talk about. I have, I have a few questions I want to ask you about your book. Now? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Um, one of them is, you know... I was really interested in your whole process of sequencing tones. And I just wondered if you could, I mean, for me, music is something that I've always, I can just hear it in my head so clearly before it happens. Um, so this idea of kind of using these tones to, I guess, become hmm, maybe like a melodic mantra of sorts. I don't know if that's the right way to describe some of the techniques you've sort of explained. But I, I, I wondered if you could go in a little more into that because uh, I'm, I'm really curious how you started with this idea of tonality and breath and, and where that came from. Well, that's a multi-part question. Mm. Um, where it came from, you know, it starts with Zazen, the traditional Zen method of meditating, mm. where you're focusing on your breath. Hmm. Then we move to, okay, I'm focusing on my breath. What am I focusing on exactly? Mm -hmm. 
So obviously I'm focusing, well, maybe not obviously, but I'm focusing on my body moving with the breath. When I inhale, my chest rises, my abdomen expands, and maybe I hold the breath for a little bit, and then I let go, and my chest falls, and my abdomen contracts. So it's the movement, the rising and falling movement of the body is one of the anchors of concentration. But the other anchor is the sound. What, what sound am I hearing? What does my breath sound like? Mm. And, you know, I say that, you know, listen to the sound of your breath because it's the sound of your life. If you're musical in a certain way, not everybody who's musical uh, feels this, but you start to hear tones in your breathing. And when you're doing the counting methods where you're, you know, you might be counting and this, by the way, is based in yoga, pranayama. This is one of the pranayama techniques, is to count. Yeah, I, I recognize that part uh, in some of my practices, and that's what was one that fascinated me, your, your look at this. So what's happening is instead of, you know, they have all, all different ways of counting, and we're just looking at the traditional four beats to a bar, so four, four, Time, although you have to keep in mind that the time is completely rubato. It's elastic. It's flexible. You could be at 60 beats per minute on one between one beat and the second beat, and then then you could be at 40 beats per minute in the next. There's no real tempo involved here. It's all according to how you feel. But you're counting four, and then when you inhale, and you're counting four when you hold the breath, and you count four when you exhale, and then you count four again when you're holding the contraction. Mm -hmm. So if I'm counting one, two, three, four, when I inhale, and then one, two, three, four, when I hold the breath, et cetera, et cetera, and the second breath, you're gonna count like a musician, so you're gonna go two, two, three, four, two, et cetera, et cetera, three, two, three, four, et cetera, right? That's how we count in music. So, so that's just the basic rhythmic counting. Mm. But then when you're doing this, you might hear a tone. So you might be going in your mind, one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. However, whatever tones you might be hearing. So you're not only counting the beats, but you're hearing tones with it. And usually the fourth beat has a different tone not always could be the same tone is, is there a reason why like that's sort of like a minor third and a and a fourth like is there is there something to that interval that's important well you can get into the why the intervals my first step is to just whatever mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. pops in your mind is correct mm -hmm. you know if the first breath it's a fourth great and you know, and the inhaling is a fourth, and you decide just to keep the tones even or go up an octave. Whatever you do is perfect. There's no system here in terms of you have to adhere to a system in terms of the tonality. You can if you want to, and it's fun to do if you're mm. a certain kind of musician. You can go into the, for instance, Pythagorean uh, intervals of the one to the four, one to the five, and one to eight. Mm. you know, which are supposed to be intervals that are 
the music of the spheres, right? The entire mm. cosmos is based on these intervals. Mm. And it's kind of fun to do. I mean, especially if you're meditating for long periods of time and this is something that, you, you know, you hear music in your breathing, you hear music in your mind. It is fun to, 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 to play with these intervals. Mm. Um, and it's a great concentration, what they call samadhi, uh, you know, very deep concentrative states it really lends itself because it, it's sticky. You know, it, it, you just, like you mentioned, you, could, you can work on music for 12 hours and not even realize it. Well, you can do this kind of thing for 12 hours and not even realize, you know, the time. You actually do realize what time is, that there are different levels of time and the timeless. You do, you are aware of all this, but it does not feel like um, you're doing it for 12 hours. It feels timeless in a way. Yeah, your 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 uh, your attention is in a different place than it normally would be, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, 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 your mind is integrated, undistracted, unshattered. You know, I go to that Tony Braxton song on "Break My Heart." <laughs> yeah, it's a great song. All right, so what meditation does in these kinds of concentration exercise, they unbreak your mental fragmentation, your mental mm. shattering. Mm. You know, they, they pick up the shards of how your mind is always shattered and fragmented and, and they put them all together. Everything gets in harmony and pointed in, in one way, which is tremendously powerful. You talk about energy, the yeah. energy when you can collect all these different energies in your mind and your body that are running rampant all over the place and collect them into one force, it's tremendously powerful. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting how, you know, the mind is, in my experience, it, it, it's funny, you know, it doesn't really have a, it doesn't have like a, a brake pedal, you know, it's just sort of like acceleration or nothing else, you know. Um, so if you distance yourself from the mind for a bit, your thoughts just kind of nat naturally come to a rest at a certain point. Um, mm -hmm. I think with music, it, your attention is so focused on something so intensely that, again, it's that's the bridge that I really see between sitting uh, a, a meditative practice, some sort of sadhana that you do, and and music. Um, I'm I'm gonna have to experiment, try some of your techniques. I I didn't quite feel like I had grasped it, but then I think what you just explained really cleared it up. Oh, good, <laughs> good, good. So did I answer your question? You did. Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So so now can we say goodbye? We can say goodbye. We can say we probably should because otherwise we'll we'll keep talking and yeah. you'll have too much to edit and you know people that are expecting things from us will wonder where have we gone. You know. All right. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on and uh, spill the beans in public. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I look forward to our next encounter. This is a ten-part series. I'm sure. <laughs> Likewise, likewise. Well, we'll have to, uh, yeah, we'll have to talk more on the subject. I really enjoyed it, and uh, 
I feel like we probably have some mutual friends we should introduce each other to. And I really, I have a couple other musicians I'd like to uh, introduce you to that, that I think you'd enjoy talking with. All right, I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much, this is Andy. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Once again, I want to thank everyone who is supporting this podcast in one fashion or another, through ratings, through reviews, through just listening. And a special thanks to James Bianco and to my co-producer, the Hannah Bowers. Until next time, I hope that you can stay in a higher octave and lets you and I stay in tune.